Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Hello, my friends. Thank you for coming back again. After my happenstance of finding the tentative date for the Atlantean War, I have gone back down some more rabbit holes to see if this date still lines up with the rest of the narrative. I have some really good additional information to add, and I have a theory as to what the third deluge before the Great Flood of Deucalion was. I've been rereading Plato's Critias and Timaeus again, and a new piece of information has jumped out at me that I must obsess over. It has definitely put a wrench into my previous Atlantis location theory. I also had an engaging conversation from some interesting folks over on Reddit in our Atlantis. The question was, what was climate like for the Atlanteans? Well, that ended up being a complicated answer, but I do think that it should be a little mini episode. I also did a general Google search on my podcast to see what reviews people may have left. I normally actively try to avoid all such things, as it's usually filled with bad news. However, I saw a review that made me smile. Thank you, Charles, for your review and support. You really did make my day. For the next few episodes, I thought I would clarify some of the more mythologically based sayings in the Critias and Timaeus. Nimason and her daughters, the Muses, are brought up, and I thought I would take some time to explain what they mean and how the sayings would be taken during Plato's time. I don't know if you recall, but my actual objective when starting this podcast was to look at Plato's work through the eyes of his audience. In order to understand what Plato was talking about, there's a bunch of backstory that classical era Greeks would have as general knowledge. Anyway, without further ado, my sources are linked in my episode description. What is your favorite mnemonic device? Do you have some song or jingle to help you remember something complex? For me, I learned this mnemonic device. My very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. It was a way for me to remember the order of our planets. Would it surprise you that the simple word mnemonic comes from the base Greek word neme, which means memory? Nemesign was the Greek goddess of all remembrance, or memory. Her memory is so great that she remembered everything since the beginning of time. Nemosine was a first-generation Titaness born from the union of Uranus and Gaia. Nemosine is often depicted as a woman with a crown of flowers, or with a staff or scepter, which were symbols of her power and authority. As being one of the primordial gods, she had reign in multiple locations. She was in charge of remembering anything, so she needed to be present wherever there would be a need for information to be preserved. Just like with Prometheus and his brother Epimetheus, Nemesine had an opposite name, Lethe, which means forgetfulness. 
The name Nemosine was also used for a river in the underworld, which flowed parallel to the river of Lethe. Usually, the souls of the dead would drink from the water Lethe so that they would forget their past lives when they would be reincarnated. However, newer souls were told to drink from Nemosine. According to mythology, if you refuse Lethe and you only drink from Nemosine, then you would maintain everything that you knew and maintain yourself for your next life. Nemosine was especially important prior to the written word. Invoking her would help poets have perfect memory for their ballads. Just like in the modern era, say something along the lines of, wait, give me a moment to remember the details. If we were in Plato's time, we would just invoke Nemesine to help us remember. In fact, Plato invokes Nemesine in two of his works, the Euthydemius and the Critias. Thankfully, we still use the term muse, so we have a general understanding of what a muse is. For those who may not have heard the term muse, it just means an object or a person who helps an artist become inspired. In Greek mythology, Zeus and Nemosine mingled in love and produced nine muses, essentially breaking up the job of Nemosine into ten parts as she shared her workload with her children. It's not explicitly recounted what Nemosine's role was in the Titan Olympian War, but the fact that she wasn't punished and was still worshipped during the reign of the Olympians suggests that she either sided with Zeus or she remained neutral. One story said that the Titanists, along with Hera, Hestia, and Demeter, took shelter in the Palace of Okeanus, which, if this is your first episode, I have an entire episode of Okeanus and Tethys. Okeanus, during the war, maintained neutrality, offering his home to both younger goddesses and the elder Titanesses. While their brothers and sons were punished for fighting against Zeus, the Titanesses appear to have been spared. Because they didn't fight against the Olympians, they remained free and were welcomed into the pantheon of Olympus. By and large, the Titaness faded from prominence. Among younger Olympian gods, they were often seen as too archaic and remote to have a real place in the lives of Greek men and women, especially after the invention of writing. Early Greek education was centered around memorization. An educated Greek was expected to recite laws, lineages, histories, and poems from memory. Because of her importance in education and the fact that she essentially embodied the action of perfect recollection, Nemesine was one of the first frequently invoked goddesses in the Greek pantheon. While she had few temples or cults, she played an important part in the daily lives of educated Greeks. Before writing was adopted from the Phoenicians, Every piece of Greek poetry, history, and law was passed down from memory. Even when writing became more common, illiterate Greeks still relied on this oral tradition and educated Greeks were expected to commit the works of the great writers and philosophers to memory. There was a tradition, therefore, of invoking Nemesine before any recitation. With the goddess's aid, the speaker could hope to perfectly remember his lessons and form the best arguments. Logic and rhetoric were important cornerstones of Greek education, and both relied heavily on recitation from memory. Even in matters of law, those making their arguments were expected to 
cite the words of the gods or ancient philosophers by memory to support their arguments. Poets would often memorize thousands of lines to tell epic tales like the story of the Trojan War. These pieces were set to music to aid the poet's memories. This can be seen in the works of Homer, some of the earliest written works of ancient Greece. The poet sang the Iliad long before it was written, beginning his poems with the invocation of Nemesine to recall over 15,000 lines of a poem alone. When the gods defeated the Titans, they asked Zeus to create a group of new divinities whose task would be to sing the praises of great victory. Zeus, therefore, mingled in love for nine days with Nemesine, his aunt, who was also the daughter of Uranus and Gaia. And then the nine muses were born. Each muse had a different symbol, art, and talent. Erato, the amorous one, was the muse of love, poetry, and mimicry. She was seen with a lyre and sometimes wears a crown of roses. Cleo, the glorious one, was the muse of history. She's often seen with a scroll and accompanied by a chest of books. She introduced the Phoenician alphabet to Greece. Polymenia was the singer of many hymns, the muse of sacred and rhetoric poetry. She's also been called the muse of geometry, meditation, and agriculture. Polymenia is often seen as being veiled. Calope, the beautiful speech. She was the muse of epic poetry. Her name means sweet voice. She and the god Apollo were parents of Orpheus, the great musician. If you want to learn more about Orpheus, I have an episode called The Orphic Religion that you could go back and listen to. Urania, the celestial one, is the muse of astronomy. She's represented with a staff and celestial globe. She had the ability to foretell the future by observing the position of the stars. Eafterpi, or the well-pleasing one, was the muse of lyric poetry. She's represented by a flute. Her name comes from the Greek Euterpean, meaning to please. Melpomene, or the chanting one, was the muse of tragedy, in spite of her joyous singing. She's represented by a tragic mask and is often seen with a garland, a club, or a sword. Thalia, the blossoming one, is the muse of comedy and playful and idyllic poetry. She is represented by a comic mask and is also seen with a crown of ivory and crook. Terpsichore, the one who delights in dance, is the muse of dance and song. She's usually seen dancing with her lyre. In Hesiod's Theogony, he narrates that the muses brought to people forgetfulness, that is, the forgetfulness of pain and the cessation of obligations. Classical writers set Apollo as their leader, giving him the name of Apollyon Musicates, or Apollo Muse Leader. In one myth, the muses judged a contest between Apollo and Marseus. They also gathered the pieces of the dead body of Orpheus, who was the son of Calope, and buried him in Levitheria. 
In a later myth, Thamaris challenged them to a singing contest. They won and punished Theramis by blinding him and robbing him of his singing ability. According to a myth from Ovid's Metamorphoses, alluding to the connection of Pateria with the Muses, Pyrrhus, the king of Macedon, had nine daughters he named after the nine Muses, believing that their skills were a great match to the Muses. He thus challenged the Muses to a match, resulting in his daughters, the Periodides, from being turned into chattering jaybirds for their presumption. Hubris, man, I'm telling you, that is probably one of the worst sins you can commit in ancient Greek, is to compare yourself to gods. Prior to these nine Muses, there were what they call the original Muses. They were located in Boeotia, where Nemesine was the oracular goddess of the underground oracle of Trophonius. The practice of worshipping only three muses lasted in Thraki. The Roman scholar Varro relates that there were only three muses, one born from the movement of water, another who makes sound by striking the air, and the third who is embodied only in the human voice. They were called Melidi, or practice, Neme, or memory, and Iod, or song. According to Pausanias, who wrote later in the 2nd century CE, there were originally three muses worshipped on Mount Helicon in Boeotia. Aeodi, song or tune, Mulini, practice or occasion, and Nime, memory. Together, these three form the complete picture of the preconditions of poetic art and cold practice. In Delphi too, there were three muses who were worshipped, but with other names. Needy, Messe, and Hepatere, which were assigned as the names of the three chords of the ancient musical instrument, the lyre. The word muses perhaps came from the Proto-Indo-European root meaning men or the basic meaning of which is to put in mind. Or it could be from the root men to tower or mountain, since all of the most important cult centers of the muses were on mountains or hills. Again, this could be because the Acropolis or the highest point in the city was always considered to be the holiest in the city. The muses were considered the source of the knowledge embodiment in poetry, lyric songs, and myths that were related orally for centuries in ancient Greek culture. Melidi, Abodi, and Neme were the original Boeotian muses. Together, these three form a complete picture of preconditions of poetic art and cult practice. The Hesiod muses, named Kolopi, Kilo, Arato, Eurotopi, Melipony, Polyhymnia, Terpiscor, Thalia, and Urania are the nine Olympian muses. Sometimes the muses are referred to as water nymphs, associated with the springs of Helicon and with Perius. It was said that the winged horse Pegasus, and that was the one that sprung from the head of Medusa, after Perseus chopped off her head and she became a Gorgon because she was raped by Poseidon, that union between 
Medusa and Poseidon resulted in two children that sprung from the stump of her body after she was decapitated. One being a winged horse named Pegasus. So it was said that the winged horse Pegasus touched his hooves down to the ground on Helicon, causing four sacred springs to burst forth, from which the Muses, also known as Pegasusides, were born. Athena later tamed Pegasus and presented him to the Muses. The Muses, therefore, were both the embodiments and the sponsors of performed metrical speech. Nyausek, whence in the English term music is derived, was once, quote, one of the arts of the Muses. Others included science, geography, mathematics, philosophy, and especially art, drama, and inspiration. In the archaic period, before the widespread availability of books or scrolls, this included nearly all of learning. The first Greek book on astronomy by Thales took the form of Datlic hexameters, as did many works of the pre-Socratic philosophy. Both Plato and the Pythagoreans explicitly included philosophy as a subspecies of Mausik. The histories of Herodotus, whose premier medium of delivery was public resuscitation, were divided by Alexandrian editors to have nine books, named after the nine muses. For the poet and lawgiver Solon, the muses were, quote, the key to a good life, since they brought both prosperity and friendship. Solon thought to perpetuate his political reforms by establishing resuscitations of his poetry, complete with invocations to his practical-minded muses by Athenian boys at festivals each year. He believed that the muses would help inspire people to do their best. Ancient authors and their imitators invoke muses when writing poetry, hymns, or epic history. The invocation occurs near the beginning of their work. It asks for help or inspiration from the muses, or simply invites the muse to sing directly through the author. Originally, the invocation of the muse was an indication that the speaker was working inside poetic tradition, according to the established formulas. For example, here's Hesiod. These things declare to me from the beginning. The muses, who dwell in the house of Olympus, and tell me which of them first came to be. And then, of course, here's Homer. Sing to me, the man, muse, the man of twists and turns, driven time and again off course, once yet plundered, the hallowed heights of Troy. And here's Virgil. O muse, the causes and crimes relate. What goddess was provoked and whence her hate? For what offense the queen of heaven began to persecute so brave, so just a man. And lastly, here's Plato in the Critias. My friend, Hermocrates, you, who were stationed last and have another in front of you, have not lost heart as yet. The gravity of the situation will soon be revealed to you. Meanwhile, I accept your exhortions and encouragements. Besides, the gods and goddesses of whom you have mentioned, I would especially invoke 
Nimasine, for all the important part of my discourse is dependent on her favor. And if I can recollect and recite enough of what was said by the priests and brought hither by Solon, I doubt not that I shall satisfy the requirements of this theater. And now, making no more excuses, I will proceed. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. In North Africa, there was once a subspecies of the African bush elephant called the North African forest elephant, Carthaginian elephant, and or the Atlas elephant. Originally, its natural range probably extended across North Africa and down to the present Sudanese and Eritrean coasts. Sadly, all that remains of this elephant are Roman sources and skeletal remains. Both horses and cattle can thrive in a variety of climates, but they generally prefer temperate climates with moderate temperatures and adequate rainfall. They are adaptable and can survive in both hot and cold temperatures. but they do the best in temperatures between 32 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit or 0 to 22 degrees Celsius with moderate humidity 